0: We're looking this morning at the subject, the hurt of natural life changes. Now by natural life changes, I mean those things that come your way as part of living. Things like having to move away, let's say, from family and friends. Things like old age setting in. Things like Loss of job or financial solvency, things like death or injury to a loved one, the loss of a dream, and so on and so on. Now I'm going to deal with the hurt of physical illness in a separate message, but even in this, think about that. Poor health is a part of natural life changes that all of us have experienced or will. Normally, we anticipate that life will have some bumps in the road. They're going to be there along the way, but not such horrendous events that force us to reassess the direction of our lives and would surely challenge our faith in God. But alas, these things come. These are bad things from our viewpoint and The difficulty we face is reconciling them with the love of God. If God loves us so much, then why these bad things that come our way? But keep in mind what we're saying here. These are natural life changes, which means that all men experience them, not just believers, but how we as Christians handle them, will speak to the genuineness or lack thereof of our faith and our understanding of the providence of God. So you'll notice in your first, the first one in your bulletin outline, consider firstly the loss of the optimism of a brighter future. Or to say it in colloquialism, the loss of your dream. What's your dream this morning? And has it been lost? We usually attribute such optimism to youth. We speak of the starry-eyed teenager who sees the world as something just waiting for him or her to conquer. Look out, world, here I come. Teenagers think they are invincible. And so they drive 90 miles per hour on a dirt road late at night with no seat seatbelt and no regard for hills and turns and blind spots. And whammo! Just over the ridge, they plow broadside into a deer that wipes out the entire front end of their car and causes it to careen into a ditch. The occupants are tossed through the windshield. And in the hospital, one teenager loses his right leg and another suffers from a broken arm. Now the future doesn't look bright at all. The accident has spoiled everything. The young man who lost his leg was working on a scholarship to Michigan State in track and field, but now the scholarship has been rescinded. Can a person walk with one leg? Oh yeah, absolutely. Can they do it effectively in time? Can they learn to run with a metallic prosthesis? Well, we saw it happen at the Summer Olympics in London when Oscar Pistorius, representing South Africa, ran in the races. Oscar was born with no fibula bones in either leg, so no bones from the knee down. But he was fitted with two metallic spring-like feet that enabled him to run in the Olympics for his country. Now, he did not win any... Racist. But that is not the point. He was able to fulfill a dream and to win international admiration and praise for his courage and his stamina and the spirit of camaraderie. You see, lesser men would have been ruined for life by such a tragedy. But Oscar went on to become victorious in his own right. It's important to note that people of the world can determine to fight their handicaps in an attempt to overcome them. Probably all of you have seen one or more of the wounded warrior ads on television in which Trace Atkins highlights men and women who have returned from battle in Afghanistan. And they return with horrendous war injuries that range from limbs loss to neurological problems. And yet these people enter into the therapy with a disposition not to let their unforeseen injury or handicap defeat them and ruin their lives. Human pride is at work here. The media says these are noble. Look at the noble human spirit. Look at the spirit of self-determination. And not everyone has this. Some by nature are so demoralized by the dream changer that has come into their lives that they give up before they even start. So, is this our answer as Christians? Do we simply bite the bullet? Do we simply dig in our heels and resolve within ourselves that we can fight back and conquer any adversity that comes our way? I mean, we will get get that prosthesis and we will train for the race. We will do the agonizing and painful therapy to regain upper body strength, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, as good an outcome that this kind of energy may produce? It falls short of the biblical injunction for believers. Here's the biblical injunction. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, verse 3. You see, the unbeliever gives no credit to God for his or her recovery. They make statements such as, "Well, I have worked very hard. I I I was determined not to let this beat me." Or they will say, "I knew I could do this if I if I just applied myself and didn't give up." There is a sense, of course, in which we as people whose dreams have been shattered must get a new vision of our lives, but as believers, our new vision does not leave God out of the picture. Consider another and very well-known victim of handicap, and I'm referring to Johnny Erickson Tata. These young teenager, she unwittingly dove into shallow water, and beneath that was hidden a sizable rock, which she hit head-on and compressed her spinal cord. This damage to her spinal cord was irreparable and she became a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair for life. She thought her life was over, but God saved her and showed her that her life had just begun. God did not heal her damaged spinal cord. She was never given back the mobility of her limbs but she learned to paint beautiful artwork holding the brush between her teeth. She studied the scriptures and became adept at public speaking. And today she is on the platform of Bible conferences along with notable Bible expositors. Not simply to tell how she has overcome her handicap, but to give forth the gospel and to give glory to God for what He has done in her life. And she means it. If you've ever heard her speak. She is not being melodramatic, but she is openly and honestly thankful to God for the life she lives. And in that she brings glory. To God. Now that's how to handle your handicap if God is in your life. Now, this is a good place to ask this question Is there such a thing as an accident in a world controlled by God? You ever thought of that? I looked the word up. I wanted to know. What does the word accident mean? Here's what Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says. An event occurring by chance or from unknown causes. An unforeseen or unplanned event. This is the explanation the world envisions because there's no recognition of a sovereign God in control of all of life. Or, or, if they believe in God, it's not the God of the Bible. They attribute good things to God, bad things to the devil, as though there were two competing deities, equally powerful, equally in control. And when people do that, they, they think that they are protecting God from accusations of being wicked. I mean, if you're going to do wicked things, then you must be wicked, right? So here's how we'll protect God. We'll make the devil responsible for bad things and God responsible for good things. But in actuality, they're robbing God of His sovereignty. And may I say as kindly as I can, God doesn't need your defense. And He doesn't need your protection. But what He wants is an acknowledgment from you of who and what He is. And men distort God like anything these days. and That's the idolatry of the heart, to take God and make Him lesser than He is. Let God speak for Himself. Ezekiel 6, verse 11 and 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Strike your hands together. Stamp your feet. Cry out, alas, because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the house of Israel. For they will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. He that is far away will die of the plague. He that is near will fall by the sword. And he that sur- survives and is spared will die of famine. So will I spend my wrath upon God in sword, famine, plague? He says so. Again, see now that I myself am He, there is no God beside me. I put to death. I bring to life. I have wounded. I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 through 41. Eliphaz said of God, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Job 5, verse 17 and 18. And one of the verses in Hannah's song reads this way. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, and lifts the needy from the heap. He seats Him with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and upon them He has set the world. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6-8. through 8. Now, in all of these scriptures, and there's tons, there's tons, but in all of these that I've read, there is no idea here of people's lives being ruled by chance or the fickle finger of fate. There are no accidents. We use the word loosely to describe what has happened as an unplanned event, but there is a plan. <laughs> And behind the plan, a planner who willingly takes credit for both the good and the bad which comes into people's lives. Now by bad, now listen now, by bad we do not mean that which is morally evil. God is not morally evil, nor does He participate in such. By bad we mean those calamities that God sends on people as a means of correction. If you're a believer, you're going to get spanked. You're going to be disciplined. Bad calamities may come into your life. Or if you're not a believer, it may be judgment on the wicked. Some of those texts that we read were that very thing. Famine, plague, and so on were judgments on the wicked. But think about things like floods, sicknesses, injuries, financial reversals, loss of freedom, the bad things that God Himself oversees and dispenses as He deems best. And we read it in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. No one can deliver out of my hand. You see, because He controls all of those things, despite the meteorologists who keep talking about Mother Nature. There's no Mother, mother Nature. There's Father Nature And His name is Jehovah God from the Old Testament. So my point is, when your dream seems to be shattered, and you're hurting because your future looks dull and not bright, remember that God is behind it. Make, Make it personal. Your God is behind it. Christ, your Savior, is behind it. And this being true, the promise of God is this. We know, says Paul, that all things, in all things, God works. God works for the good, those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8, verse 28 through 32. It's important to understand that all of the events in our lives are controlled by our God. And I'm happy that it's that way because that God happens to be my Savior. And if you're a believer here this morning, He's your Savior too. And this promise is made that He's working on all things, some of the bad things. He's working on those things to bring good out of them. It'll be to the praise of His glory and also to your God. So, in natural life changes, the believer's future is bright even though maybe your dream has been altered and been changed because of circumstances, because of God's providential intervention. What about the loss of financial solvency? That's a natural life change. You had a job, but you lost it. You graduated from college with a degree, but no one will hire you. You had money in a retirement plan, but the company bigwigs diverted it to a risky venture in the stock market, and you lost it all. You listed your son, your daughter, or your grandchild on your joint savings account, because you needed help with paying the bills, but they went into the bank and cleaned out the entire amount, leaving you with zero. You were counting on the equity in your house to be a nest egg for your retirement years, but the housing values crashed, and now you owe more on the house than the house is worth. On and on we could go, but it is all bad news financially. We're not stupid. It is the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. But for money itself, we all know that we need money or some form of commerce to purchase the necessities of life and pay our bills. Now knowing this, however, can cause some trouble. Since we know we need money, we may conclude that getting money is the all-important number one goal in life. Let me read the whole verse. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What kind of griefs? Well, first and foremost, a disallowance of God as our chief and primary benefactor. To put it simply, are you trusting your savings account, or your business savvy, or your portfolio to meet your needs, or are you trusting God? Well, you answer that question honestly and it will tell where you are spiritually. Jesus addressed this issue in the Sermon on the Mount saying this. Do not worry. But we all worry, don't we? (laughs) And he gives us the areas where we worry. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them, but you seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well." Matthew 6, 31-33. Isn't that interesting? God knows that you need food, drink, clothing, we throw in some other necessities, housing, probably a car or we could just say transportation of some sort. He knows what we need. But he still does not say to us, go for it, get out there and grab all the money you can get. Instead he says, no, you seek first God and his righteousness, and God will take care of those needs. Now Jesus was not using the word worry like we sometimes do. Meaning that we should not concern ourselves to have a job and work and earn our pay as though God were going to bless laziness and indolence. Oh, I don't worry about anything, you know. God will take care of me. Do you have a job? No, no, (laughs) I don't work. What do you do? Oh, I go fishing all day. I like to... Yeah. Is that how he uses the word worry? No. That's the way we use it. Actually, no lazy or indolent will receive anything from the Lord. In fact, they're warned in the Scriptures. Paul writes, For even when we were with you, Thessalonians, we gave you this rule of a man will not work, he shall not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. That's workfare, not welfare. The church is not just a benevolent station that hands food and clothing and all that to people that won't help themselves. Why Solomon wrote, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. And yet, and yet, it stores its provisions in the summer and it gathers its food at harvest. How long are you going to lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Proverbs 6, 6-9. through 9. Lazy people have been around for centuries. And there are people that profess Christianity and they're the worst. Oh, well, God will take care of me. If we swing the pendulum to the other side, the other extreme, there are people whose whole life ethic is to work, work, work. Where are you going? Work. Didn't you work 12 hours yesterday? Yeah, I'm going to work. How long have you been work? work today? Probably 14. Work, work, work. Now the first sin issue, from a, is the first sin issues from a false assumption that depending on God's promised benevolence means I don't have to work. I don't have to exert myself in gainful employment. God will take care of me. God said He'll take care of me. And the second sin issues from trusting in our own ability to make money, even to the point of putting God on the back burner as non-essential. Jesus put it this way, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6 verse 24. And you recall Jesus' point in telling the parable of the rich man who tore down his old barns so he could build bigger and newer barns to amass more produce and take life easy without a care in the world. But God required his soul that night, and his fortune did not benefit him one whit. And then Jesus made this analysis. This is how it will be. With anyone who stores up things for himself, but he is not rich toward God. Luke 12 verse 21. You see the balance. Now again, again. God is not condemning having a savings account or a pension plan or some source of income for your future. What He is warning against is trusting in those Temporal, fluid, volatile things as though they were an unmovable rock of financial security. Nothing in this world is certain, especially in our day. Fortunes made in the stock market today can vanish tomorrow. Solomon warns us do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint, cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. (laughs) For they will surely sprout wings and fly off in the sky like an eagle. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. And my, hasn't that happened to so many people, probably to some of us sitting here this morning. What we thought we, we banked our little nest egg, and it's gone. There is one rock, however, that will not move. David says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior from violent men. You save me. Second Samuel 22, verse 2 and 3. God is our rock. Jesus taught, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came and the torrent struck that house, it could not shake it because it was well built. Luke 6, verse 46 through 48. Fastened to the rock. So by all means, strive to obtain a job. Strive to earn wages. Save part of what you earn. Live below your means. But don't trust in any of these things because it is, as John told us, the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. First John 2, verse 17. Our security for our care is God, not our checkbook. At least it better be. Or you're going to be very disappointed. Very disappointed. Thirdly, what about the loss of the strength of youth and the onset of old age? When you're 12 years old, you never think about getting old. You're too busy, having too much fun playing. When you're 15, you wish you were 20 and out of your parents' authority so you can go where you want, do what you want, make your own friends. Friends. When you're 40 you are concerned about how secure your job is, how am I going to support my family, what lies ahead in the economy, what's going on in national politics. When you're 65 you are contemplating retirement and drawing Social Security and you hope that it will be there for you and that there will be enough income to support you so you don't become a burden to your kids. When you're 80, you anticipate going to be with God because your old bones just ache too much and your mental acuity has slipped to the point where a senior moment seems to be the only moments that you have. Now, while each of these phases in life have their own set of advantages and disadvantages, we ought not to think that God is more present and more active in one over another. Note how Isaiah describes this in our text. Verse 3 and following. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, O you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived, life begins at conception, and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Isaiah 46, verse 3 and 4. So you see what God is doing here. He does a panoramic sweep of the human life cycle from the cradle to the last days of life, from you as an infant to you with gray hairs and everything in between. And he is saying something like this. You have never been alone. You have never been alone. I have been with you, right by your side, from the beginning. In all that came your way, good or bad, I was there. The unseen, solid rock, below the surface, supporting the weight, of your trials, even if your trial was simply a scraped knee or a broken bone, as a child. I've been there shoring up the weakness of your body when you were bedridden or recouping from surgery. I've been there helping the timidity of your faith, as when Jesus rebuked His own disciples saying, "Oh, you of little faith, and sustaining you. I have been there sustaining you in the confusion and frustration of your failing memory your failing memory. See, this tenacious love of God for His people was never predicated upon their performance. It was never dependent upon their obedience. It was never conditioned upon their faithfulness, but solely on God's sustaining grace. And neither sin nor Listen now. Neither sin nor the aging process changes that of God the psalmist writes. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. That's all we are. Just dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over and it's gone. (laughs) It's gone. And it's place remembers it no more. That's you. That's me. That's me. But, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. Psalm 103, verse 14 through eight. Yeah, you're dust. You and I are feeble. We're going to blow away like the wind come along and get us. And no one's going to remember that, but God remembers. His love is everlasting. The religious of the world promote a pagan concept of God—that He must be appeased, and so He doesn't get angry and annihilate the race. We got to do something to appease God, and their idea of appeasement is their own sacrifices. Well, I'll give money, I'll give my time, I'll do a ritual, I'll get, sacrifice animals. Ignorant of the fact that God owns the universe and He needs nothing from us. You can read about it in Acts 17. Because our hands are stained with sin, He accepts nothing from us. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 1. Wow. The ultimate appeasement, sacrifice, has already been made and you cannot improve upon it. God writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8 verse 32. God gave his son. God appeased himself. Paul chided the Galatian churches who readily... Admitted. Oh yeah. Well, we need Christ as Savior. Okay. Yeah. But but they also thought that to Christ they had to add their own ceremonies, their own work. God did His part. Now we must do our part, and together we will be saved. That's not the gospel. Paul in that text calls it another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Oh, he says it's worse. It's a perverted gospel. You follow that gospel, you go to hell, not to glory. You see, our marketable skills are not what sustains us. Your job, though you're supposed to have one, and work hard and all that, not what sustains you. It is God's watch care from the cradle to the grave. And that's what He is saying in this text in Isaiah. He's always been there. He's always been caring for His people. Now that brings us then to the last point of our outline, the glory of God's unfailing love. What is the glory of it? Number one. Once a child of God through faith in Christ, God does not disown us when we sin. You see, if we're saved by grace, then grace deals with the sin issue. People don't get this. You need to get this. One day sin will be no more. We will not desire sin and we will not commit sin, but that day isn't here yet. It's coming. In the new heaven and the new earth. But our text in Isaiah is addressing the house of Jacob and all who remain in the house of Israel. Verse 3. Okay. What has happened to the majority in the house of Israel that there is only a remnant? Verse 1 and 2 describes the sin of idolatry for which God had brought the Babylonians against them, taking them into captivity. Verse 2 we read, They themselves go off into captivity. Their little idol gods did not protect them because they're not God. And so, He who really is God, the God that brought them out of Egypt, delivered them from Pharaoh, cared for them from the cradle till now their hair is gray and they're experiencing all of that. but They went into their idolatry so God sent the Babylonians upon them and they went into captivity. Now this is punishment for sin, is it not? Yeah, it is, it is. It's punishment for sin but I'll tell you what it is not. It is not abandonment of God. The Lord chastens those He loves is the principle of Scripture. It is not God disowning His people and walking away. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 4. After saying that He has been with His people from their youth to their old age, He goes on to say, I am He who will sustain you. I've done it in the past. I've been doing it all through the centuries. And I'll continue to do it. He goes on. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. He says it again a second time. I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. Rescue you. Look at the last verse in chapter 45. But in the Lord. All the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt or praise God. Whose righteousness will vindicate Israel and bring emancipation? Back to our text, verse chapter 46, verse 12 and 13. You who are far from righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. God does not disown us when we sin, but He covers us with a blanket of His own righteousness. And so my point is that sin cannot damn us if we're in Christ. That's the tenacious love of God. You didn't do it, but He does it. Continues to do it. And then secondly, nothing else, firstly sin, but now nothing else in all the universe can separate us from God's love. say, well, maybe sin can't do it, but... No, there's no other thing. Let me read it for you from Paul's analysis in Romans. He even asked the question, and here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Talk about throwing down the gauntlet, right? Let's talk about this. Let's debate this. I know it's in your mind and you're thinking about it, so let's just get it out on the table. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's certainly dealing with the pagan concepts. You know, the Greek and Roman concepts of God was if you... If you, you appease them and you did good, they, they did nice things for you. But boy, you better not cross the gods. Because if you cross the gods, they're coming at you with a vengeance. That's not our God. In His grace, out of His grace. Once His child, now He's not a child. Saved, now you're lost. That's the way men think. And so Paul says, let's get it on the table. Here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to throw out some examples. Things that he's thought about. He's probably picked it up from his own understanding, but also from what people say. And he starts his list. How about trouble? Shall trouble separate us from the love of Christ? Or hardship? Or persecution? Oh, there's a biggie. Or famine, oh that's the food issue, right? Or nakedness, Uh, uh, there's the clothing issue. Or danger or sword, ah, what about a military takeover? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered, and this is from the world, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Look in the world, look at the hostility towards Christians. Just this week, some guy went into a Christian organization with his gun. He was going to pop as many people as he could. He did shoot the security guard. The security guard did not what was not armed. It was a Christian organization. But he had enough strength left to tackle the guy and hold him there until the police could get there and the other employees helped him. Why? Christian organization and he hates Christians. He was part of the gay movement in that area. We are considered a sheep for the slaughter. So what about these things? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger of sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, how about that, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8, 35-39. He begins the list and then he gets to the point, he says, why don't I just say it like it is? Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ. You see, Satan would have you fret and worry about your future, and Paul is saying what Isaiah says in our text: "Don't worry, God is there. He has always been there. He will continue to be there, covering you in His righteousness for sins committed." Verse thirteen and. Sustaining and rescuing you from those wicked forces that would capture you and hold you fast and cause you to fear and worry. Verse 4. That's the tenacious love of God. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that hard days are coming for Christian believers. Historically, we move in cycles. Europe under Nazi occupation was a time of deprivation, hardness, misery, death. But our salvation is not in atomic bombs, but in the almighty God of creation, the Savior and Lord for all who will repent. Jesus said, don't fear those. Don't fear those that can kill the body. Fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell. See, it's perspective. You get a view of God and rightly related to Him. Once you become part of His family as His child through faith, faith in Christ and repentance of your sins, and he holds on to you tenaciously in that godlike love that's unconditional and not predicated upon anything you do or will do. Then or thereafter, it's all of his grace and goodness. You don't know a love like that, maybe. If you don't know a love like that, you can by coming to faith in Christ. Lord, send thy spirit of quickening upon any that are dead in trespasses and sins. Woo them and draw them by your grace. Bring them into the family of God right now, right this moment. And may they learn from that the forgiveness of God for their sins and the newness of God that he can give in creating in them a new heart with new desires, new thought processes and new desires and goals for life. May they be flooded with the realization of God's love. God's unconditional love. We do pray for our day. We pray for our people. There are these natural life changes that come our way. We're not alone in this. The world experiences it as well. But what we have that they don't have is the love and watch care of our God. That He's been there and always will be there through all of these things, thick and thin, Lord, that is a great comfort to us. and We know it has been bought and paid for through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and His cross who paid for our sins, who bought us the freedom that we enjoy and the peace of mind and the peace of heart. If we don't have that today, I pray that today we will have it, that you now will send your spirit of revival, spirit of life to dead and dying hearts, Bring them alive. We read a text this morning. You bring death. You also bring back to life. Lord, we're already dead in trespasses and sin. Bring us alive. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Jared will